Let's pray, and then we'll dive right in. Lord, we come to you, and we thank you for our time on Wednesday nights. Um, I'm thankful um, for the summer break that's coming up, where we'll have um, that much more time to, to be with our families, to have people in our homes, to engage our neighborhoods, to, um, to make friends, and to share Christ. Um, but in these last few weeks, as we have four more studies left, uh, I pray that you would guide our time according to your will. I am thankful, thankful for what we have learned um, in this different approach on Wednesdays, moving at a quicker rate. And uh, I pray that it would not cause us to be sort of fast and loose with the word, but to really take in sort of the scope of of this message and the scope of redemptive history that you um, have chosen to reveal to us in the word. And I pray that our time Wednesday, um, on these Wednesdays, would really inform Um, even more specifically, our time in devotion and our time uh, as we hear the preached word on Sundays. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for Jesus. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I kind of want to mention before we start, just just a reminder that some of the things we've seen in the life of Samuel, um, that it's, it's not enough to have, you know, a good Wednesday study, and a good Sunday morning sermon. Like, that's really just not enough. There, there needs to be daily devotions for, for each of us. If we're believers, we're, we're believers every day. If we're children of God, we're children of God every moment. And so, um, daily time in the Word that's uninterrupted, you can meditate on it, is, is not really a negotiable thing. And I, I think most of our schedule is crazy that we could um, tend to think devotional time's a little more uh, negotiable, and it's not. So um, tonight, a lot of y'all have, um, tired faces, and there's a part of the study um, that's not encouraging. <laughs> it can't. It will be, but that part of it, it doesn't feel very particularly encouraging. But then there's other parts that are. So um, everybody, open your eyes and let's let's go to the word. Um, our verse that we're looking at in First Samuel particularly is. And found in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. 2-2 two, two says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is none like our God. Uh, last week, we spent most of our time looking at the life of Samuel, which is contained in the book of First Samuel. And then this week, we're going to be looking at the life of Saul. And there's a little bit of Overlap. So just expect some overlap tonight. We're going to talk mainly about Saul, but some about Samuel because their lives overlap. And next week we're going to talk about David in, in, at length, but there's a little overlap with David and, and Saul as well. There's a couple other guys in there, Jonathan and such. So um, this week we're going to look at Saul, who's an impressive man marked by self-reliance. So last week was Samuel. What was Samuel marked by? Say that again. Listening to God. He would listen and what? Listen and obey. That, that was his, his thing. That was what he did. And he, he was the last what of Israel. He was the last judge of Israel, which is significant because this is a time where there's a transition going on from the time um, with the Israel. Everything all right? Do what? Sam Simmons. He, he went that way. Cool. I was going to tell you, your kids have already gone. I didn't know. I was like, if you're looking for them. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Samuel was the last judge of Israel, and his life was marked by listening and obeying. Um, And there's real encouragement in that. We're going to look at it a little bit more tonight. But in asking for a king, how was Israel rejecting God? What did we consider last week? Yeah, that, that was actually what they expressed in their very um, appeal. You know, God, give us a king like the other nations. And the whole point of Israel is that they're not like the other nations. They're different. They're set apart. Um, they're holy unto the Lord. And so there was sinfulness and, in fact, evil in asking for a king. Yet the Lord grants them a king, which is who we'll meet tonight. Um, and then last week we, we talked briefly about our view of mankind and our perspective when it comes to leadership. Does anyone remember what we said about that? How our view of how we actually are 
affects what we hope for in our leaders. And, and what, what did we come to last week for those who are here? That's not usually a thought you're just carrying around. That's why I'm saying if you're here, what, what do we come to? Say that again. Yeah, fallible. If, if you believe that man is generally um, depraved and fallen, then you're not gonna be real big on a single leader model. You're gonna wanna diffuse authority if you believe in the depravity of man. And so the leadership model here is that we have a plurality of elders and we have an even bigger plurality of deacons and that there is no one person who has the power to, to, to make particular decisions. We, we do that in, in wisdom that's really greater than the sum of its parts because we believe in depravity. But if you think man is generally good, uh, you want to find the guy who's better than most, at least, and then put that guy in charge. But really what you're doing is you're holding on to power because as soon as you're done with that guy, you can rally the troops and get him out of there and bring another one in, just the same. We've seen it done at church after church. So the thing that makes Samuel such a good leader, a, a theme in First and Second Samuel is leadership and faith during faithless times. And one of the things that makes Samuel such a good leader is the fact that he does not trust the goodness of man. He trusts the goodness of God. Samuel does not trust the goodness of man. He trusts the goodness of God. Samuel characterizes some of the best things about godly leadership. And if we were to follow his example, we would give ourselves to studying, to praying through, and to obeying God's word. Last week, I, I felt a, personally just a call to, to re-engage God in, in maybe a new, fresh way in, in my devotions and in my prayers seeing this example that was set for us by Samuel, and I'm hoping that some of you had that same inclination or maybe even um, conviction uh, to be more serious about your time with the Lord, studying the word, praying through it, meditating on it, and really seeking to obey it at every opportunity. Um, we're gonna look towards, uh, look at Saul. Now turn to um, chapter nine, verse one. Uh, I've actually had a really wonderful time studying the life of Samuel. And so he keeps jumping back in the picture as I'm trying to prepare my notes for Saul. Um, growing up, really, to be honest, the whole God calling Samuel in the middle of the night and him going to Eli saying, what did you want? And that whole thing, that was the main picture I ever saw of Samuel. And it was very sort of surface. But as I've been studying it these last couple of weeks, I'm like, man, this guy is such an encouragement. He's so consistent. He's so centered on the word. And he's not, he's, he's not into himself at all. He's just like, man, this is what God says. And we should probably do that. Oh, you big group of people, that's not what God says. Y'all probably shouldn't do that. Oh, you king, yeah, I know you're a king, but you're acting like an idiot and you probably shouldn't do that. I mean, he's so true and sincere and authentic in regards to the word that as we look at how Samuel is not quite so much, it brings us kind of back to looking, or looking at how Saul's not quite so much, it brings us back to looking at the life of Samuel. So there'll be overlap. So the book of 1 Samuel is actually really more about Saul than it is Samuel. Although I like studying Samuel more than I do Saul, because Saul's a bit of a bummer. As with Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel contains the entire life of Saul, who, as I said earlier, provides the picture of a leader as the impressive man. Now, who are some leaders that y'all think of that just immediately come to mind when I say they're, they're leaders and they're just, they're just an impressive person, just impressive. You look at them and there are things that just jump out. Boom. Who, who are some of the strong leaders that jump to mind just as impressive people? You don't have to give Bible answers. I mean, we're going for whatever here. Billy Graham. Ronald Reagan. Who else? George Bush. Everyone's like, should I say that or not? <laughs> Is that too political? Who else? What? Barack Obama. Yes, yes. I thought you said Bono at first. I was like, huh. Huh. You wasn't one that I was thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> Who else? Yeah, Martin Luther King. Yeah. Who else? Abraham Lincoln. 
Yeah, there's people that jump to mind. They're just impressive leaders. Um, here, we're going to read about Saul. He's, he's an impressive one. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of, son of Becheroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. Benjaminite's hard for me to say. I don't know why. A man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Isn't that weird reading that in your Bible? It's like all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, and Saul's handsome. It's just kind of weird. I don't know. Um, no one was as handsome as he. So we get this, the, the prettiest, handsomest king you can imagine. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So what do we know about Saul so far? Handsome and tall. Yeah, from his shoulders up only. It's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. He had a very big head. That's kind of the point. So uh, look at verse 15. Jump forward a little bit. And I'm going to read verse 15 through chapter 10, verse 1. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, who at this point is still the judge. There's this sort of, this point where Saul enters the picture. He's not yet anything. He's just handsome and tall from the shoulders up. And he is, um, he's going to a place um, where, where Samuel is going. And the Lord has intervened to make some things known to Samuel. And that's what we're going to read about now. Now the day before, and let me just encourage y'all, y'all should really read this. Like, I feel, I feel like I'm cheapening it a little bit. I'm like, yeah, they're going to a place, God did some things, and he knows some stuff. Like, it's a really great story. Like, we should just, y'all should read it. Um, we don't have time to read First and Second Samuel in its completion on our time here. So, look at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people. This next part's a little confusing. Just look at details, though. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cries come to me. When Samuel saw Paul, Saul, when Samuel saw Saul, when he saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Okay. <coughs> then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me where is the house of the seer? What is a seer? <coughs> someone say prophet yeah prophet fortune teller someone who can see and then it says in verse 19 Samuel answered Saul I'm the seer go up before me to the high place for today you shall eat with me and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago that was a really dramatic thing that happened but you didn't read about it yet so do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desired and for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? It's a big question. Is it not for you and for all your father's house? I mean, he just said, All that you can desire, that, that's what's gonna be don't worry about the donkeys. We got this. Someone found them. I know that. And and is is it's not all that you can desire gonna be for you. And he says, and Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite? from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? This may be one of the only spots in all the book where we see a little bit of humility in Saul. He doesn't say, I am handsome and pretty. I understand why you are speaking to me in such kind words. He actually says, I'm from the most humble tribe, the least of, of these. Why, why are you talking to me in this way? So it's, it, it's, a, it's a notable point there. And then in 22, it says, Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. That probably feels a little weird. Where's the seer? I'm the seer. Come with me. Sit at the head of the table. Here's 30 important people. Okay? Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See, what was kept is set before you, eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day, and when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he laid down to sleep, 
Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, <coughs> stop here for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. And then he gives him a sign about people he'll meet and some things that he'll encounter. Pretty abrupt sort of thing. Like, that's the first... Is, which, which, what number is Saul in, in regard to the kings of Israel? Second, who was the first one? Yeah, Abimelech. Ahimelech or Abimelech, which is it? Two gold stars are waiting for anyone who knows. <laughs> Fantastic, I can't remember either. Um, too many weird names. So this is a pretty abrupt transition. I mean, he comes into town, he's worried about losing his donkeys, he meets... Samuel, where's the seer? He says, I'm that guy. Then he invites him to a dinner. He's honored at the dinner. The next morning, hey, why don't you let your servant go? I got to tell you some things. Here's some oil. I'm anointing you as the king of Israel. Remarkable thing that's going on here. So the narrator refers to him as handsome and tall. And in 1024, later on in chapter 10, Samuel says to him, um, says of him, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And in chapter 11, we see the high point of Saul's reign where the Ammonites are defeated and the kingdom is renewed. And I want to read aloud chapter 11. It's a shorter chapter, but I want us to kind of climb into this and see what's going on. So he, he's handsome and tall from the shoulders up. Samuel is saying, look at this guy that the Lord has brought you. You asked for a king, and man, he, he brought you quite an impressive specimen. And now he's coming into chapter 11, and this is a high point for Saul's reign as king. And it says this in chapter 11, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. He's a real sweetheart. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh and how Nahash the Ammonite had been so harsh with him. And the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek or Bezek or whatever, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. You can gouge out our right eyes to disgrace Israel. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. So let's start striking them down in the morning until the heat of the day. I mean, it's just a... a probably a five-hour hand in their tail to him. And those who survived were scattered so that, get this, no two of them were left together. I mean, they beat them so bad that it wasn't even possible for two soldiers to escape together. It was, I don't want any of y'all together. I don't want there to be any joint, any unity left. We are going to beat you badly. Then the people said to Samuel, 
Who is this that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. So the people are kind of looking back and saying, wait, someone questioned Saul reigning over us. Let's kill them while we're killing everyone else. And Saul says, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. The reason I read the parts that I read is that we see both this private um, ceremony where Samuel makes Saul the king as God had ordained, and then we see this victory, and then we see the people saying, yes, Saul, you are king, and we're going to make this official, and we're going to give an offering unto the Lord. After this remarkable time for the nation of Israel, this is a high point. And you'll notice for Israel over and over again, those high points seem to not last real long because of unbelief. After this remarkable time for the nation of Israel, it's time for Samuel to bid them farewell as their judge. The time of the judges has come to an end right now. After this victory against the Ammonites, the time of the judges is coming to a close. And look what Samuel says in 12, 3, 6, 3 through, 13 through 16. 12, 13 through 16, this is what Samuel says. I want you to think about what we've heard from Samuel thus far, the kind of things we've heard from him, and look at, look at how he kind of wraps things up here. He says in 13 through 16, And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. He stays true to the message that he has proclaimed throughout his entire time as a judge, throughout his entire time of his life, as we've seen it in the scriptures. Um, Listen and obey, listen and obey. And he says, just because you have a king now doesn't mean you got to stop that. Just because you have the king that you wanted, if you disobey God, you and your king will die. But if you obey God, you and your king, for, for you it will be well. So things don't change just because they have a king now. He's saying, no, 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 it's still, we're going to keep the main thing the main thing. You listen and obey because your God is good. Just because you have a king doesn't mean you need God any less. He wants to make that clear to his people that he loves clearly. And let's look at verses 17 through 25. I love this section of 1 Samuel. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And listen to this. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. I mean, climbing to that moment for a second. Samuel's saying, I want to be clear that what you did is evil. And to make that clear, I'm going to call out to the Lord. Let's say it's a harvest day. I'm going to call out to the Lord for thunder and lightning. And when that thunder and lightning comes down, you're going to know, affirmation from the Lord, what you did was evil. You have a king, but what you did was evil. It's an interesting dynamic here. And it says, you know, so Samuel called on the Lord. The Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. That's usually how it is. If you're a person who fears the Lord and people see the power of the Lord in you, there may be a fear that they'll fear your God and, and you to some extent because you're being true to the Lord. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with your God. So they feared the Lord and Samuel. And look at verse 19. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask ourselves for ourselves a king. Notice that they're not just looking at the sin of asking for a king. They said, we've got all this other evil and we just added evil to the evil by asking for a king. Pray for us. What did they say that we might not die? That's the concern that comes upon them as their sin is made known to them. We don't want to die in this. Samuel said to the people, this is such a weird sentence. Do not be afraid. 
you have done all this evil. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. I mean, he is so genuine in his appeal. He's like listening and obeying to God is the only way. Do not be afraid. You've done all this evil. The best thing you could do is to listen and obey. Turn from what you're doing. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. I mean, he's just so, don't turn aside to empty things because they're empty. Don't turn aside to worldly stuff because it's worldly. Don't turn aside to fleeting stuff because it's fleeting. Don't turn aside to fleshly stuff because it's fleshly. He's just so genuine. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord, (laughs) broken record, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Samuel, as he is engaging King Saul and his people, I mean, he is true to the word. The section is remarkable for for a few different reasons. First, Samuel, Samuel still holds Israel accountable for their sin. In my devotions this morning, I ran across an article that spoke to this. What does he call what they did? Evil. He calls it evil. And, and what does he call, um, who, who's responsible for the fact they have a king now? Oh. Say that again. They asked for a king, and who gave them a king? God. I mean, well, is it good or is it bad to have a king? Are they evil or did God give them a king? Was God evil in giving them a king? Then why do they have one if it's evil to ask for one? What's going on here? There's a tension here that we need to feel. They did something evil. They asked God for what they wanted, and what they wanted was what, what was not what God said was best. And God said, I will give you a king. And Samuel is saying, what you did was evil. Now don't turn from the Lord. The devotion I ran across this morning, or the article I ran across this morning in my devotion says this, God using the evil things for our good does not make the evil things less evil. It's a good thing for us to remember. Sometimes we want to sort of minimize something that we've done that's horrible or something that someone else has done that's horrible. And that's okay. No, that's not okay. But God is still very good. God using the evil things for our good does not make the evil things less evil. This is so hard. I don't know if you've ever been on the receiving end of evil. This is hard. This is a hard teaching. Goes on to say, so in the truest sense, we look evil straight in the eye, call it evil, and say loud and clear that whatever havoc it wields, whatever pain it causes, it is permitted, not free. We tell evil it's not the ultimate reality in the universe. There is one who is stronger. There is one who is so sovereign and so good and so wise, in fact, that he overpowers evil to use it for the everlasting benefit of his people. But it's still evil. Y'all see what happens there. He, he calls it evil. He doesn't say, all right, well, maybe it wasn't so bad. You got a king and he's handsome and tall. He said, no, you, you, what you did was evil. The thunder and lightning is a reminder of it. You've got to wonder what they felt every time it thundered and lightened after that. One who listens and obeys will always call evil evil. Always. Second, the thing in this little section that jumps out is Samuel warns us that it is a sin to stop praying for evil people and doing all that we can to instruct them in the good and right way. Did y'all see that? He says, 
do not be afraid, you've done all this evil. And then down there he says, moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. So, it's sin to stop praying for evil people and doing all that we can to instruct them in the good and right way. I really want this to hit you however it needs to hit you. I want this to hit you however it needs to hit you. In your anger over the Boston bombing, have you thought to pray for the bomber? In your anger over the Gosnell abortion clinic nightmare, have you given time to pray for the one whose hands work such evil and murder? The district judge's wife who apparently killed the DA in Kaufman and was responsible for those killings that came out in the news today. I mean, I tend to see evil like that and I'm like, they should die, right? Isn't that kind of where we jump? You, you hurt people on purpose with a bomb, you should die. You killed babies, you should die. You murdered people just out of cold blood because they wronged you, you should die. But I mean, the wages of sin is death and all have sinned and fallen short. If someone hadn't prayed for me and continued to instruct me in the right way, and I'm, as I was walking in my evil, I would have no hope. That's what God uses to bring people into the way. It's still evil. All those things are so evil. But as I was going through this, I had to stop in my office and pray for the bomber and pray for the abortion clinic person who I have zero respect for. I had to stop my office and say, I, if I don't stop and pray for these people right now, I'm not walking in authenticity. But I want to tell you, I never thought to do that before today. So that's why I say, let this hit you how it needs to hit you. So when we see a discouraging prevalence of evil, we don't give up. When we see a discouraging prevalence of evil, we don't give up. This is hard. I know for a lot of people, 2012 was a doozy of a year. I almost, I got to a point where I almost couldn't watch the news at all. I just turn on the news and I'm just like, this is the most discouraging way that I could possibly end my day. Let me lay in bed, turn on the news, see how ridiculous everything is, and then hopefully have sweet dreams about raising my children in the fear and discipline of the Lord, hoping the best for their future. Evil is pretty prevalent in in a lot of ways, I mean, we, we see new forms of evil each day. I mean, Romans 1 talks about that, inventors of evil. There's new ways to be evil. But when we see a discouraging prevalence of evil, we don't give up because we know that God wins. I mean, you know how the story ends? <laughs> that doesn't always encourage us in the moment, but studies like this and times like this looking at the word do encourage us in that moment. When we see the prevalence of evil, we don't give up. We call it evil. We expect God's goodness in it. And we pray for those who are responsible for the evil. That's God's plan in times where we see those things. And especially in times where maybe we're overwhelmed with those things or we become dark in our thoughts. Those are the kind of things that will sometimes bring professing Christians to some of the darkest places you could ever realize. They can bring professing Christians to a place where they're saying, I think I know God. I, I, I want to believe that Christ is mighty to save, but this world is a train wreck and I can't see any joy in being here. But that's not true. This is the day the Lord's made. I'll rejoice and be glad in it. There's never been a day where that wasn't true. He's always great and greatly to be praised. His greatness is always unsearchable. So in the worst, darkest, most horrible, oppressive moment, you can say, in this mess, God is great and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. I need to be searching for that greatness. I need to patiently wait for the time that the Lord will show me what that greatness is. Because sometimes it takes months. Sometimes it takes years. But God is good. When his word goes forth, according to Isaiah 55, it does not return void. It will do what it's intended to do. And it has such an effect that the rain and snow of the word can fall on thorn bushes and turn them into cypresses, according to that. I mean, he's so good, and sometimes it's really hard to see because of all the evil. It's really hard to see. There are so many babies right now that need homes, and I'm like, 
we hear about them every day. And I'm like, there's so many people that their homes are already full. They already have kids. Like, we're talking to people who've already adopted kids in the last year saying, could you take another one? There's, that's such a need. That's, a, that's so heartbreaking that there's so many abandoned kids. And you can just get to a point where you're like, man, this is a mess. But you've got to know that God is good. And we can expect to see his goodness even in the most dark moments. When we see a discouraging prevalence of evil, we cannot give up because we are children of the king and we speak truth. That's God's plan in those moments. Chapter 11 is sort of the last point where we see Saul doing something good. Saul's life and career really kind of go downhill for the next 20 chapters. Saul's life and career go downhill for 20 chapters, which, which include about 40 years of time. So what could cause such a decline in a leader that seemed to hold such promise and possibilities? I mean, he's tall and handsome. While Saul was impressive to others, he was also very impressive to himself. That's very dangerous. Saul was very impressive to others. But he was also very impressive to himself. People would say, you're awesome. And he'd be like, I know. I am awesome. That's how Saul was. He trusts himself more than he trusts other people, and even more than he trusts God. In chapter 12, I'm going to give you bullet points because there's so much here, we can't just read through it. In chapter 12, he disobeys direction from Samuel, who heard from God. God speaks to Samuel, Samuel hears from God, Samuel goes to Saul, speaks God's words to Saul. Saul says, "Eh, I'm not so sure. I might have some better ideas. He goes on in chapter 13, And does not wait on Samuel, and he offers an unlawful sacrifice that God does not approve of. And Samuel doesn't come up and say, well, you're a king, I guess you can do whatever you say. No, Samuel comes up and says, what have you done, Saul? What have you done? That's not okay. That's evil. And we can't do evil things because that's not, you're not the king of a nation who's supposed to be led in an evil manner. He shoots straight with him. But still Saul disobeys the Lord. And again in chapter 15, Saul disobeys the Lord and Samuel confronts him. And I want you to look at 1530 to see Saul's response. Samuel goes to Saul. He confronts him again, says, you are defying the living God. And Saul says this in 1530. How much better is it? No, I'm sorry, 1530, not 1430. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Okay. He basically concedes and says, I've sinned, yet honor me. What does Saul reveal about what's important to him in this verse? His what? His reputation. Yes, I have sinned. Now, while everyone's still looking, will you honor me? We'll go bow before the Lord over here quietly, but while everyone's still eyes on me, honor me. Saul is most concerned about his reputation. Remember, people are impressed with him. He's impressed by himself. And if people aren't impressed, man, that's going to get to the heart of what he sees as important. Look at verses 10 through 12 in chapter 15. A little... Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and then you look at uh, 10 and 12. He says, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. This is 15.10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and, is, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, He set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. What else did Saul do that was out of order? Who did he set up a monument for? Himself. Can you imagine? I, Scott, am going to set up this monument here. We're going to call it Scott. There's such arrogance in what he's done. He's, I'm not going to listen to God. I'm not going to wait to do the sacrifice rightly. Samuel, I know you're telling me you heard from God, but I'm a king. And here, (laughs) honor me, 
I sin, but honor me while everyone's looking. And oh, by the way, he set up a monument for himself. This encounter between Saul and Samuel in chapter 15 sets the stage for the rest of the book. Saul becomes tormented by jealousy. That's something that happens when people think very highly of themselves. They'll often struggle with jealousy. That sounds counterintuitive, right? Like, no, I'm awesome. I'm not jealous of anybody. Right. He (laughs) models it for us. He becomes tormented by jealousy as his kingship is increasingly eclipsed by the real main character of 1 and 2 Samuel, David. David's the real main character. Okay, God's the real main character. David's really important after that, and he's above Saul and and maybe even Samuel in in his importance in in these chapters. But man, it torments Saul. Even though he thought very highly of himself, he became very tormented by jealousy. And as David grows in fame, Saul grows in resentment. Those are things that go along with jealousy, resentment. And he eventually repeatedly tries to kill David. That's evil. Repeatedly tries to kill David. His bitterness and hatred increases to such a level that in chapter 22, he leads a foreigner to kill 85 Israelite priests because one of them helped David. Do you hear that? Hey, foreigner, there's 85 priests of the living God over here, and I think one of them helped David. Kill them. Kill them. That's the kind of man we're talking about when we're looking at Saul. Devers says, in other words, Saul, the leader of God's people, becomes the opponent of God's will. In chapter 28, Saul consults a medium, not God. And finally, in chapter 31, Saul kills himself as the nation is defeated by the Philistines. He's so different from Samuel. He's so just focused on himself. Things just cave in and keep folding in. He's so worried about himself, and at the end, he eventually kills himself as the nation is defeated by the Philistines. Back in chapter 8, the people of Israel wanted to have kings like the other nations have. The desire to be like other nations, Dever says, alone with their Lack of trust in God leads to idolatry, atrocity, and self-destruction, even as we see in Saul's life. Saul's life sort of pictures what happens in Israel. They trust in themselves, and it just, it's, it, it's self-defeating. Um, following their kings, the people began to marry foreign wives, worship foreign gods, and ultimately find themselves ruled by foreign kings. How ironic that the people Joshua led into Canaan to be a witness to the nations become a mere imitation of them. It's a sad thing. In closing, in the next few minutes, we got maybe five minutes. Does anybody know the popular philosophy represented by the writings of Henry David Thoreau and Ralph Waldo Emerson? Transcendentalism. There it is. Transcendentalism. Does anybody know what transcendentalism is? Born to take a crack at that? Say that again. Really love nature. What else do they really love? Focus of self, yeah. Yeah, the philosophy was all about self-reliance. It was, in that thinking, it was a heroic thing to march to the beat of your own drummer. That is, I was thinking about that phrase on the way here, driving in my truck, and I was like, I've never seen anyone march to the beat of their own drummer. I think it would look ridiculous. I don't think everyone would stand in awe and be like, that, that's awesome. It's just, march to the beat of your own drummer. I, I think it's a funny phrase. But it was a heroic thing in this philosophy of self-reliance. Emerson wrote, um, self-command is the main elegance. I call on you to live for yourselves. I remember reading their writings in high school. These dudes living out in the woods, these cool, like, man caves, writing and reading and writing and reading and just walking through nature. And just, it was just, I thought, man, that's awesome. Like, who wouldn't want to do that? That's cool. And while they're doing that, they're trumpeting the philosophy of self-reliance. You're good enough to do whatever you want to do. Be awesome because you are awesome. And in high school, I just remember thinking, I think I found it. These guys are brilliant. And I remember reading their writings and feeling inspired. Self-command is the main elegance. I call on you to live for yourselves. I remember reading that in high school with all these other people in my public school and, and just thinking, man, that's inspiring. These guys are inspired. I want to go live in a cool cabin, not be bothered by all these people. 
Because at the time, I did not understand how they were in horrible conflict with my Christian faith. I didn't understand it at the time in high school. I just thought, man, that's awesome. That's, if everyone did that, the world would probably be better. But I didn't realize how that was totally in horrible conflict with my Christian faith. At, at the time, I didn't get it. How does the Bible view self-reliance? A fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Yes, you can only control yourself in as much as the strength that Christ gives you. So what is self-control at its essence? A fruit of what? The Spirit. So you can't be like, I am the most self-controlled person ever. No, 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 that's a fruit of the Spirit. If you didn't have the Spirit, you would have no self-control. Quit, quit boasting. Boast in Christ alone. What else does the Bible say about self-reliance? Say that again? Folly. Turn to Proverbs 26 real quick. I think it's 26. Yeah, Proverbs 26, 12. I can't remember if it was 16 or 26. Self-reliance. Proverbs 26, 12. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Man, it may have been a cool philosophy, this transcendent. I mean, it even made it into a country song. Y'all know, does anyone know what country song it made it into? By transcendental meditation, I go there each night. That's George Strait, ladies and gentlemen. No? No? Okay. I'm pretty sure Jimmy Buffett sang about it too. I mean, this is a popular thinking. By transcendental meditation, I go there each night. I always come back to myself long before daylight. All my exes live in Texas. Come on. <laughs> so it's popular. Live for yourselves. It's what's noble. Um, so how do we fight against that? In, in, in 1 Samuel 2.25, the priest Eli asks, asks a leading question. He says, if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And in 620, um, others reflect, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To fight against this living like what, what Saul was guilty of, and it led to his destruction, and to keep more in step with what the Lord led Samuel in, um, we have to confess our sins. That's the first thing. If, if we don't confess our sins, sometimes we think we're tricking people in that we're not sinners or we're not honest with ourselves about our sins. Everyone in here has sins to confess and we need to confess them. And I used to think I'll confess them to God and that's sufficient, but there's some verses in James that say confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. So if I really want healing, there is a dynamic and an aspect biblically where I confess my sins to other people. So we confess our sins. We start putting to death our reputation. Your reputation doesn't matter as much as you think it does. I struggle with this. I'm a young pastor. I struggle with this. The Bible does say be well thought of by outsiders. The Bible talks about reputation, but reputation is not above God. You do what God says. So we have to start putting our, to death our reputation as an idol and our love for what others think of us. There's a book called When People Are Big and God Is Small. The main point of the book is if you need the approval of people to keep going, you're not going to love those people the way God called you to love them. You can't. Because if you're needing that from them, you won't love them in the selfless way because every time you serve them, you're looking for some self-serving, self-fulfilling affirmation of how awesome you are. And we can't have that view of ourselves or of God or of others. So we'll close with just kind of some practical things after looking at the life of Saul. Beware of those whom you want to impress. Beware of those whom you want to impress. There may be names that are popping into your head right now. Man, I've got a reason that I just want to impress those people or that person. Beware of those whom you want to impress. Put to death your reputation. Serve people. Philippians says, don't look to your own interests only, but look to the interests of others. When you find yourself just consumed with your own interests, I can get there in like two seconds. Seriously, I, my thoughts, I can just, what do I need? What do I want? What do I need? What do I want? What does my family need? What does my family want? And I just lose sight of everybody else who needs the love of God. Beware of those whom you want to impress. 
Seek instead service that is humble and hidden. Some of us need to go serve people in ways that others will never know about. Some of us need to make it a goal this week, figure out a way to serve someone else in a way that no one else knows. Just, just serve them, bless them, encourage them, love them, write a note, bake dinner, leave something cool on a doorstep, whatever. Just serve people in ways that they may not know, maybe someone else will never know. But it's okay for it to be hidden and it may be necessary for it to be hidden if you're struggling with your reputation. For Christ himself came not to be served, but to serve. Christ himself came not to be served, but to serve. Let's pray. Lord, I'm thankful for our time in the word. I'm thankful for the way that you work all things for good, but we're never called to quit calling evil, evil. We're called to fight against the flesh. We're called to put to death the things that are earthly in us. We're called to pray for those who are performing evil things and to work hard to instruct them on the way that is right, to speak the truth. Lord, help us to see that as like all of life, not as just these things we sometimes do when we decide we're feeling spiritual and we need a project. Help us to live that. Help us to know we will never find complete and full satisfaction in anything that the world has to offer. This is not our heavenly dwelling. This is not eternal. This right here is fleeting. It's passing away while the outer nature is wasting away, the inner nature is being renewed day by day. I pray that we would focus more on the inner and less on the outer. I pray that for myself especially. And I pray that that would affect everything we say, everything we do, the goals we set, the hobbies we have, the friendships that we have and the way that we treat others. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Christ who sets this humbling example for us. No one has ever been on the receiving end of worse evil than our Savior, Jesus. And never has evil been turned on its head more than at the cross. They were cheering as the nails went through his hands, but then the tomb was empty and they were conquered and evil fell in on itself. And you are good. You are great. You're greatly to be praised. You've shown us so much through that. So let us look to the cross and look to Christ and remember that he came not to be served, but to serve. We love you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.